2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. The Bible says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, So through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril And he will deliver us. And on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer. So that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us. Through the prayers of many. Verse 9 tells us very plainly. That the sufferings that Paul experienced had a purpose. And that purpose was that he would no longer rely on himself, but on the God who raises the dead. This morning, I have been praying that the Spirit of God would use this text in my life and yours to renew our minds and refresh us so that we can see clearly and rely on wholly the God who raises the dead. Let's ask him to bless our time. Father, we pray that you would illuminate this text to us. And particularly this this one phrase that we focus on today, the God who raises the dead. May we walk out of here today knowing that we've met with you, that you have used your inspired text to reveal yourself to us in fresh ways. Forgive us, Lord, of our sins. Help us to focus on what you have for us. And may we glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was a 15-year-old boy who was above average height for his age. And he was playing basketball with a few friends after school. And he was showing off his ability to slam dunk the ball. The coach of a high school team, a team that was kind of struggling to win any games, was informed about this young man. But there was a 15-year-old who qualifies for the team that can slam dunk the ball. And so the coach goes to see this kid in action. The coach then asks the kid to join his team. And at practice one day, this boy outshined all the other teammates. So he was asked to join. And he became the secret weapon. As that high school team that didn't know the smell of victory began to experience some wins. By nature of the fact that he was tall, this boy was able to dunk. And as a result of his track record of dunking, 
He was faithful to dunk. And so call upon him when you want to score more points. Rely upon him when you want to help win games. He is the boy who dunks the basketball. There was a veteran teacher, a lady who was thinking about leaving the education system after about 20 years teaching. She taught middle and high school students in a very challenging environment. She was well-educated. She gained advanced degrees in her field. She was an expert in her content, and even more, she knew how to manage her classroom. Despite teaching in communities that had high dropout rates and high teacher turnover, she was a faithful teacher. She built rapport with her her, uh, classes and with her uh, teammates. And her highest achievement was having the highest percentage of graduating children in both 8th and 12th grades throughout her career. Her warm but strict approach was a model for all teachers in school, and she became a model teacher and a coach to those who were inexperienced. This lady knew how to de-escalate tension. She knew how to build trust with families. She knew how to overcome, help students to overcome challenges. And she was able to maintain order in her classroom like nobody else in the building. She held her students to high standards and she was able to achieve willing compliance among otherwise challenging teenagers. Though she considered leaving the profession, a new private school opened up in town. And this private school was thrilled that they were able to bring this woman into their faculty as as part of the founding staff and as an example and a mentor to teachers in the new school. And so by nature of her poised demeanor and her sharp intellect, she was able to manage her classroom. And as a result of her track record of managing challenging classrooms, she was faithful to manage her classroom. Call upon her when you want to train new teachers. Rely upon her to lift up students where they need to be. She was the lady who manages her classroom. There was a startup company, and they were seeking to purchase a piece of property that had been lying dormant for years. Apparently, this plot of land was... uh, beset by over-regulations and zoning issues, and nobody was able to make a move on that piece of property. And so an associate told the company's owner, get in touch with this local man. This man is so successful in making deals, he'll help you to get that property. And so the owner, the CEO, made the phone call, and he did not regret the phone call. He brought in this man who had had a booming presence, This man closed hundreds of deals that seemed impossible. He had connections. He had experience. He had extensive knowledge of his field. This was the go-to guy when you wanted to get something done. By nature of his quick wit and confident approach, he was able to close the deal. And as a result of his track record of closing very important and high leverage deals, he was faithful to close the deal. Call upon him when you want to get the job done. Rely upon him when you want to get the most bang for your buck. He was the man who closes the deal. Brothers and sisters, we're human, right? And as human beings, we're inadequate to do things on our own. We're not perfect. The Bible says we are fallen 
And that is why throughout life we have to rely upon others to help us accomplish things in our lives. No matter where you are in life right now, think of your your successes and your achievements. You can most likely find some people who helped you along the way. People other than yourself that brought you to where you are to feed into your life to help you. And we know this to be true because in many contexts, the self-sufficient person, we often criticize that person, right? As an egomaniac. If there's one thing we've all learned in life, it's that we can't rely upon ourselves. And yet, it seems to be something that we continually fall into. And this is why the experts, right, the professionals, the superstars are are so successful because they are making up for others what is lacking in them. And thus, the struggling basketball team doesn't rely on itself, but on the boy who dunks the ball. And the brand new school doesn't rely on its new faculty, but on the lady who manages her classroom. And the startup business doesn't rely on the inexperienced CEO, but on the man who closes the deal. However, even though our society might idolize people like that, even the experts are fallen human beings. The boy who slam dunks the basketball cannot manage a challenging classroom. The lady who manages the classroom cannot close the deal. And the man who closes the deal cannot slam dunk the ball. In fact, even in their own fields, none of them are perfect. The boy who slam dunks the ball doesn't have a 100% field goal percentage. Not every one of the lady who manages the classroom students will graduate. And not every deal that the man tries to close will close. Thus, while in this life, we are blessed to have many other men and women to help us with various needs. Just as we are not to fully rely on ourselves, we cannot fully rely on others either. To rely on ourselves is to be self-centered. To rely on others is to be man-centered. But I pray that in today's passage, we will learn to rely upon God, that we may be God-centered people. And who is the God that I'm speaking of today? Not the gods who are lying in graves somewhere. Not the dumb idols that people make out of wood and marble. But the God who raises the dead. Verse 9 tells us, That God himself designed for the Apostle Paul a a piece of suffering. Think about that. Whatever you're going through right now, whatever conflict, whatever suffering, whatever affliction, have you thought to consider that God, as hard as it is to believe, has specially designed that for you? For what purpose? He tells us in verse 9, we We felt we received the sentence of death. Paul was so afflicted, he thought he was going to die. And he said, but that was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on the God who raises the dead. Let me tell you about someone who is way more talented than the boy who dunks the ball. Way more wise than the lady who manages the classroom. Way more successful than the man who closes the deal. Let me tell you about a person, a being, whose track record is 100% perfection. 
who by his very nature cannot fall, cannot fail, cannot err, who always knows what he's doing, whose will cannot be thwarted, the one who delights in performing for us the seemingly impossible. He is the God who raises the dead. Call upon him to save your soul. Rely upon him to change your life. Call upon him to transform you and your families and your communities. And why? Because nothing is impossible for the one who can raise the dead. This, as Paul says in verse 9, is one of God's titles. We think about all the titles of God, the King, the Lord, Adonai, Elohim, Jehovah, Yahweh. And Paul says in verse 9, almost so so matter-of-factly, the God who raises the dead. Because that's just who He is. That is His nature. Because He is God, He can raise the dead. That means that God has the ability to do what no man can do. You know, statistically, 10 out of 10 people will die. And nobody can raise himself up again. Why is he referred to as the God who raises the dead? Because Paul wants us to see by the Spirit of God the finality of death. You know the finality of death, right? You've lost, we've all lost loved ones. We've been to funerals. Either we've cried or we've seen loved ones cry because of the finality of when that casket closes. You know that at least in this lifetime, you will not see that person again. And the Bible says there's a time to grieve, a time to mourn. That's our human experience. We mourn because that's the end. It's over. Death is the great equalizer. Death is final. When you're dead, you are are medically physically, biologically, unable to rise again. Your organs shut down. Your body grows cold. Life is over. And you need to know that the death that human beings experience is the death that Jesus experienced. John chapter 20, 28 to 34 You just listen to me as I read this, this account. After this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Later in the day, verse 33 They saw that Jesus was already dead and they did not break his legs. And one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. The separation of blood and water was to confirm that that man on the cross was really dead. This was not an act of illusion. But Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, really assumed a human nature, a full human nature like me and you, with a full human intellect and a full human soul and a human body. And his body was dead. Contrary to any other theory that might be out there, some would say he was in a coma. He had fainted. No. He assumed a full human nature. He had a heartbeat. He had blood in his veins. He was human just like you and me. And he was dead. 
The blood and water separated. John tells us, he said, I give up my spirit. The finality of death had come to the Son of God on the cross. And then to make it even more impossible, to to, to show you that this was truly happening, he was then buried. Buried in a tomb. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, three days in that tomb. Just in case you thought it was just a coma, or he swooned or fainted. He was dead and buried. But have you ever noticed that Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb? He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Just just think about that for just a moment. Why would you use someone else's tomb? We typically borrow things that we don't need permanently, right? But if we need something forever, we buy it ourselves. Like maybe I could could borrow your car or I could borrow some money or borrow a tool, but I'm not going to borrow your toothbrush or deodorant. Who borrows a tomb? I mean, think about it. If, if If you write in your will, please bury me in Bob's casket. But then when I'm done with it, Bob can use it. So I'm just going to borrow it. Even if you're strapped for cash, you don't go to a funeral home and ask the undertaker, do you have any temporary coffins here? I can't afford one forever. The point is, you would not ask for a temporary plot or a temporary tomb unless unless you don't need it very long. Jesus borrowed a tomb. He borrowed a tomb because he wasn't going to need it very long. He only needed it for three days. Because on the third day, Christ was risen. He was raised by God. Listen to what the apostles said. I'm just going to read a few scriptures. What the apostles, after they saw the risen Christ, what they preached throughout the Roman Empire. Acts 2.32. This Jesus, God raised up. And that we are all witnesses. Acts 4.10. Let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Acts 5.30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. And then Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 8, verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Brothers and sisters, the witness is clear. Jesus was really dead, and Jesus was raised. And why? Because of the God who raises the dead. There is nothing impossible for my God. There is nothing impossible for the God that we worship. If He can raise the dead, if He can bring out of finality something new, then there's nothing He cannot do. That's why Paul says in verse 9 of our text that even though I felt that I was at death's door, God was being good to me because he was stripping away from me any bit of self-reliance because my total and utter dependence can only be on God, the one who raises the dead. So as we come today to Easter Sunday, Let us be reminded 
that Easter is about what God did and who God is. Or I should say what God did so that we could be reminded of who he is. See, we often misconstrue Easter. We fight all these battles saying, and then for good reason, we're tired of the commercialization of the bunny and the candy. Or it just seems like every year there's more onslaught about false ideologies and conspiracy theories about what really happened on that day and did he really rise again and did the disciples steal the body and so on. Or is it a pagan holiday? And we get into all these side, we get sidetracked, right? But Easter is the climax of the gospel. And the gospel is the good news. And news is something that really happened. We're not here today to just memorialize a fairy tale. We're not here today to just talk about a nice little fable This is something that really happened in real time. There was a man named Jesus of Nazareth. And he was really crucified on a Roman cross. And three days later, he really rose again. And that is good news. And the resurrection is the climax of that. And Easter is the the mountaintop of good news. But I want to go further than that. Because good news is only good when it impacts us, right? There's a lot of news out there. You just go on your phone and go on your news app. Read all the headlines. There's a lot of headlines. The first few headlines might be the most important. You might need to know about finances because it might affect you. The stock market. Or things to pray about. Tragedies happening in our nation and around the world. I was looking at my, uh, one of the apps I, I use just last night when I was going over the sermon, thinking, well, what is on the news? You know, and first few headlines about Supreme Court issues and elections and shootings and things that really have impact on us that we should know about, that we should pray about. But as I'm like scrolling more, I'm seeing things like something about a new cabin concept being proposed for airplanes and how it's going to save a lot of room and eliminate the middle seat. Maybe those of you who fly, that, that's important to you, but not so much to me. And then I thought this was an interesting headline. Some customers are complaining the new olive oil infused Starbucks drink is making them run to the bathroom. <laughs> Might be someone whom that affects if you work there, but... And those of us who drink, you know, if, if you're a Starbucks fan, maybe that headline is helpful to you and you won't drink the olive oil infused drink, but for many of us, it's irrelevant news. The news that Jesus died and rose again is not irrelevant news. It is the headline. It is the headline that we've been proclaiming for 2,000 years, and if the Lord tarries, we'll continue to proclaim that. And it's good news because it has a direct impact on how we live our lives, not just on Easter Sunday, and not just on Sunday, but every day. And what is that news? It tells us who God is. When Jesus comes out of that grave, it reminds us of the power of God. Because listen, on that day 2,000 years ago, God didn't win a contest. He didn't have a streak of luck. He didn't just stumble across something good. 
He didn't overcome lifelong adversity. This was not a fluke. This was not chance. This was not one out of a million. This happened because God said it would happen. And he has the power to make it happen. So the God who raises the dead did what he can do. He raised the dead. That speaks to his nature. That helps you when you pray. That helps you when you worship. Because you know that you're worshiping and praying to a God who raises the dead. It's his nature. He's the one who creates life. He's the one who has the power over life. He's the one who breathed into man the breath of life. He gives and he takes away. It is his track record. All throughout the Bible, there are examples of God doing the impossible, of multiplying loaves and fishes, of walking on water, of raising a widow's son, of raising Lazarus. It is his track record. God could do whatever he pleases. And thank God he is good. He is good and he is perfect. He's not just perfect and powerful without being good. That would be bad news. We would have a tyrant for a God. But he's not just perfect and powerful. He's also good. And he will do what is in the best interest of his people and the glory of his name. When you look at the resurrection, it is the gospel story of Christ that he was really dead and he really rose again. Really. And you might say, well, he doesn't do this enough. He doesn't do it enough, though, because my loved ones are still in the grave. But the physical resurrections point us to a spiritual resurrection that we all so desperately need. And what is that? That is the gospel that saves our souls. Do you realize what Ephesians 2 says about you and me prior to our conversion? It says that we were dead in sin. If you're here today and you're not believing on Christ, you might be physically alive, but you are spiritually dead. And if you're here today and you have believed in Christ and he is your savior and Lord and he has changed you, you were dead. But by the power of the gospel, you've been made alive. The same resurrection power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead can cause your eyes to see, your stony heart to melt and grant you eternal life. We were evangelizing yesterday. And somebody on the street told us that he's done too many bad things to go to heaven. I want to let you know that if God can raise the dead, he can forgive any sinner. We sang the hymn, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. The fact that God raises the dead to show us what's impossible makes everything else seem possible with God. Look at verse 10 in our text. It says, he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. And on him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Do you see in that text a past, present and future? It says he delivered us. That's the past. He will deliver us or in the Greek, it's he will keep on delivering us. That's the present. And then on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. That's the future. It's not one and done here. God continually delivers his people. And Paul knew this very well. Even if that was his time to go. Even if Paul were to physically die in Asia. 
he would have experienced eternal bliss with his Lord and Savior. This verse in verse 10 with the past, present, and future sort of points us to the reality of our own salvation. Your own salvation has three aspects to it. Your past, present, and future. And you can remember this by the the three P's of sin. Three, Three words that begin with P. In your justification, you have been saved from the penalty of sin. You and I deserve to die. The wages of sin is death, right? We deserve to go before God and be judged on the fact that we have committed transgressions against God's law. None of us in here is perfect. We're all fallen. We have all broken God's law. You shall not commit adultery in your head. If you've committed lust, you've committed adultery. You shall not lie. If you ever told a lie, you broke God's law. We can go on and on. We've all broken God's law. We all deserve the penalty of his wrath. But in salvation, you are saved from the penalty of sin. You no longer have to pay for your sins because it's been paid for. Jesus absorbed the wrath for you. Hallelujah. The second, though, is in this present life. You've been saved from the penalty of sin. What about sin's power in your life? You know this very well as a Christian, right? Even though though you've been pardoned, there's still this struggle within you. Where you have to choose every day to follow your lusts and temptations or follow the Lord. And by the same Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead, He indwells us and He is empowering us To have victory over the power of sin. We call that sanctification. So we've been saved from the penalty of sin. And we are being saved from the power of sin. But verse 10 tells us that we set our hope on him that he will deliver us again. And that points us to the very future. Because in this life, as much victory as you obtain over the power of sin, you and I know that we will inhabit fallen bodies in a sin-cursed world until the day that we die or when Christ comes back. But when He does, when He does, He will make all things new. We are going to a new heavens and a new earth where there is no more disease. And no more sorrow. And God wipes away every tear. And no more crime. And no more sin. It will be perfection. And in that day, you and I will be saved. The third P, the presence of sin. We were saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. And one day we will be saved from the presence of sin. And that is all yours in Christ Jesus. You can't earn that. You can't buy that. It has all been accomplished for you on the cross, in the empty tomb, by the power of the God who raises the dead. Why then would we want to rely on anything other than our, than our God? Why rely on ourselves? Why rely on others? And listen, if you're here today and you've never repented of your sins and come to Christ, I pray today would be the day that you surrender to Him. And you will find pardon for your sins and the power to overcome them and look forward to the day where you'll be freely and finally delivered from sin completely. Now, what does this mean for us? Go back to our passage. I know we didn't look at a lot of the verses here, but 
What Paul is talking about in, in 2 Corinthians 3-11 to is what we've been considering in our time in the book of Acts. You might remember a few weeks ago, Paul and his, his compadres, as they were going around preaching the gospel, they, they suffered a lot. Uh, they, they suffered from the hardships of people who rejected the message in the synagogue. They endured a riot in Ephesus where they almost got trampled on and killed. And Paul would later talk about other hardships he has experienced throughout his journeys. And shipwreck and being whipped and being imprisoned, right? And so when you, you see what he says in, in verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of all the affliction we experience in Asia. That's what he's referring to. And then in verse 9, he says, we felt we had received the sentence of death. So Paul is telling the Corinthians, we've been through a lot. We, we've suffered a lot for your sake. But let's go back to verse 3. Because in verse 3 is how he addresses, right? He's not complaining. You, you know what it's like to list all the bad things that happened to you, right? I had a bad day today. Tell me more. Well, this happened. Then someone cut me off. Then I lost my parking spot. Then I got a ticket, the other parking spot. And then I was late to work. And, then, and we list all those things, right? Paul is literally saying, this happened to us. This happened. This, I, I felt like I was going to die. But verse 3 begins with the word, blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. Now, how in the world can anyone maintain a positive attitude in the midst of such hardships? It's because he's trusting in the God who raises the dead. It's because he recognizes that the more suffering he experiences, the greater God's comfort and mercy feels to him. And with the comfort and mercy that God is giving to Paul, he is now able to comfort other people. Do you know that if you're a child of God, that whatever affliction you've endured is first to make you not rely on yourself, but on the God who raises the dead. And second, it prepares you to comfort others who are going through the same affliction. Nothing happens by accident. God knows what he is doing. And so take your eyes off the things of the world and see God as the one who raises the dead because death touches everyone. Because life from death seems impossible. What then does it say about the God who can raise the dead? He is able. He is able to comfort you. He is able to help you. He is glorious. He is worthy. You can call on him. You can rely on him. The Bible says it's not just in this life. Because he rose Jesus from the grave, you and I have a hope beyond the grave. This is not some health and wealth message that if you just trust in God, he's going to restore everything to you physically. Some of his disciples did go to the cross, did go to the grave, were persecuted unto death. But Paul says this, that if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all, of all people, most to be pitied. I mean, honestly, we're wasting our time here on Easter Sunday. This is just a formality, right? We dress up, we wear pastel colors, we do our thing, we say hello, it's a beautiful day, spring has come. But really, it's pitiable. We're, we're spending hours here at church talking about this man who came back from the grave. If he didn't really come back from the grave, why are we here? Paul says, if Christ 
if we only have hope in this life, we're, we're pitiable people. But he says in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. For as by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, that's Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And he goes on to say that we will rise with him. Brothers and sisters, I think this is something we don't think about enough. Because we're so focused on this world and this life. But if you're in Christ, you will see him as he is. You will appear with him in glory. You will be raised and made new. And just as the new heavens and new earth will be perfect bliss, so you and I will receive new bodies that don't break down. I don't know what that details are. The Bible doesn't explain all the details, but I know it's amazing. Romans 6, 8. Now, if you have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Romans 8, 11, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I want you to be encouraged that that power that raised Jesus from the dead resides in you by virtue of your union with Christ by faith alone. We can have this comfort We can have this hope, even if in God's sovereignty, like Paul, we are stripped of everything. If if your identity is stolen, if your bank account goes to zero, if your health withers away, you can still have comfort. Because you recognize that this present world is not all that there is. We will be raised on the last day and live forever in perfect union with our perfect Savior. And how can I say this? Why trust what I'm saying with any modicum of confidence? Because we believe in the God who raises the dead. That is the good news of Easter. This fallen world will be renewed. God is the God of the impossible. He's the one who raises the dead. And a life that is fixed on Him, that relies on Him, will find comfort in affliction and joy in the midst of trouble. Let it be said of us as a church, not that we're really anything special, but as we go to our places of work, as we interact with our loved ones, as we find ourselves in our neighborhoods, that people recognize that we experience the same trials they do, but for some reason... We have joy. So that we, by our very life, can point to the one who raises the dead and said, I have a reason to have joy. You see, when you're holding on to the world so much, your money, your health, your job, your relationship, when those things are taken away, it robs you of your joy, right? But when you hold on to the God who raises the dead, it doesn't matter what comes down your way. Because you can have comfort and joy. Why can the troubled basketball team, who's always losing games, play with with some level of confidence despite their weakness? Because now they have the boy who slam dunks the basketball, and he's on their team. How, How could this brand new, small, private school forge ahead with the new year despite all of its inexperience? Well, because they have the lady who manages the classroom, and she's on staff. She's going to help. 
Why can the CEO of a startup walk into a boardroom with potential investors, even though he's just gotten his business off the ground? How could he even enter that room with any confidence? Well, it's because with him in that room is the man who closes the deal. But even more so, why can Paul endure the affliction of church planting in the midst of a hostile environment where he almost loses his very life and yet continue in confidence because he trusts on the God who raises the dead. Because you believe in the God who raises the dead, you can endure opposition for the cause of the gospel. You can persist in prayer Because of the God who raises the dead. You can fight temptations of sin and have victory. Because of the God who raises the dead. You can have joy in the midst of trouble because of the God who raises the dead. We as a church can impact this community because of the God who raises the dead. We can have assurance that our sins are pardoned because of the God who raises the dead. We can see the word of God change lives. As we teach it to other people and preach it because of the God who raises the dead. Because of the God who raises the dead, you can face tomorrow. You can trust Him with your finances. You can trust Him with your health. You can trust Him with your family. You can trust Him with your future. You can trust Him with your soul. Because He is the God who raises the dead. Let us put to death any self-reliance. And rely upon the one who is for us. Because nothing is too hard for him. And as Paul said, if God is for us, who can be against us? See, for you to experience, if you're on the basketball team, that, that boy who slam dunks, you have to be on the team, right? You've got to be part of the staff if you want to work with the lady who manages her classroom. You have to be in some sort of contract with the man who closes the deal. But listen... The God who raises the dead is on your side because by faith you have union with him. So you are on his team and he is for you. And even in the midst of adversity where it seems like he's against you, as Paul said in verse 9, as hard as that is to understand, he's doing something in your life. He is stripping away self-confidence so that you can rely upon him, the God who raises the dead. By nature of who he is, you can trust him with your life. You can trust him with your death. He has a perfect track record. He does all things well. Nothing is impossible for him. And no other God can do what he does. Because all those gods are either dead or fake. There's one true and living God. He holds the world in his hands. He raised Jesus from the dead and he will give life to our mortal bodies if we believe upon him. Good news, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ is risen. God fulfills his promises. Let us rely upon the God who raises the dead.